I have to dip some lid to the entire sector because I've just watched them do it themselves with very little external support, with very little government support to say, no, this is, we're going to have a real crack at this. And so I've just stood back with admiration to watch the sector grow and now just to see it flourishing. Welcome to episode 76 of Startup West. My name is Steve Elias and welcome to my co-host Brody McCulloch. Hi Steve and welcome to all our Startup West podcast listeners. Startup West podcast is all about startups, entrepreneurs, innovators who have been there and done that and doing it right here in sunny Western Australia. On this episode, we are honoured to have the opportunity to converse with Professor Peter Klinken, the Chief Scientist of Western Australia. So uh, I'd like to acknowledge the, the Noongar people, uh, the people that have been living in this part of the world for at least 48,000 years, probably going back maybe 60,000 years. So I'll say, Kai Nunakot, Nijawaja Noongar Buja, Nyan Karich Noongar Bridi Mum and Bridi Yoga, Kura Kura, Weyayay. So I said, hello, everybody. This is the land of the Noongar people, particularly the Wajak clan. There are 14 clans in the Noongar nation and the Wajak clan live uh, here and around the Perth area and I acknowledge their elders past and present. Hi, Peter, and welcome to Startup West, an honour and a pleasure to have you join us today. Oh, thanks very much for the invitation. It's an honour and a pleasure for me. First and foremost, uh, can you tell us about your important role as Chief Scientist of Western Australia? Ah, certainly I can. Um, so I, I've been in the role for... Uh, eight years now, and just today I signed off on an extension. So oh, there you well go. Run. So, Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Is that another eight years? <laughs> <laughs> I think the government might be a bit tired of me by then. No, it's a three-year term. Um, so it's a, it's a really cool role. People ask me if I like the role, and I tell them I don't like it. It's because I love it. It's just such, such a, a, a special uh, position and such a privilege to be in this role. So there are three bits to it. Uh, so any minister who's got science or technology in their portfolio can approach me for advice. So essentially I'm a consultant advisor. I'm not part of the political system. I'm not part of the public sector. I'm not part of academia. I'm not part of industry. I sort of sit at all by myself <laughs> in this little area. That's the chief scientist domain. Um, but what I do is provide advice to government uh, in a frank and fearless way uh, and it's independent external advice. So they can ask me for what I think about you know, the quality of the Swan River, uh, how space technologies are going, whatever. It could be all sorts of things. Um, second part of my role is uh, I can um, request to meet with ministers or senior public servants to say, here is something that I think you need to think about. There might be an opportunity that's coming or potential uh, dangerous situation, whatever. So I, I can reach out. And then the third part of the role is what they call the chief cheerleader role. And that's to go out and talk about science, technology, engineering, mathematics, innovation uh, to anyone who listen. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a very, very cool role. Great. And, and the, like, you've got to cover so much mm. stuff mm. Uh, from yeah, innovation, science, technology, mm. be across a whole range of things. What, what's probably the favourite part of your role? <laughs> the whole lot, to yeah. be perfectly honest. <laughs> Um, I, I got to tell you, it was really quite funny. I, I had to give an after-dinner uh, talk to uh, St. Catherine's College and, you know, it was, it was a discussion around what's your role and so on. And at the end of it, um, this hand goes up and this young man stands up and goes, okay, so you made a career uh, in medical research. You did genetics of cancer and leukemia and, you know, you, you developed some real serious expertise in that. 
do you skate a bit thin on everything else in terms of chicks? <laughs> <science?" laughs> uh, nailed it in one, son. <laughs> so true. But I know people <laughs> and I know people who are the experts in those areas and, the, you know, the, the advantage of my position is I can go to people and say, please, give us your thoughts on this, give us your thoughts on that. And one thing I can do is synthesise things, bring things together. And I think a big part of my role really is to act as a translator or an interpreter to get out of geek speak and try and present it in a manner that uh, politicians can understand, mm-hmm. the general community can understand, and the public sector can understand. So um, it, it's it's a fascinating role in that you get lots and lots of different inputs, synthesise it, and then try and present it in, in a manageable or digestible form. Peter, I guess flexing the conversation to the WA startup community, mm. uh, what are your thoughts on the WA startup and innovation, I guess, early stage uh, ecosystem um, from what you've seen over your journey mm. and how the WA startup scene has flourished during that time? Well, I, I was saying to Brody maybe yesterday, um, when I first came into the role eight years ago, uh, I had people in the startup and innovation sector coming to see me and they were almost literally in tears. Uh, they felt unloved, unwanted, undervalued and just struggling to get traction. Um, it was, for me, it was probably one of the most heart-wrenching parts of my entire journey as chief scientist to see this group who was so important to our development and evolution as a society, uh, really, really struggling and not being valued. Um, I have to dip some lid to the entire sector because I've just watched them do it themselves with very little external support, with very little government support uh, to say, no, this is, we're going to have a real crack at this. And so I've just stood back with admiration to watch the sector grow and now just to see it flourishing and to think, oh, my God, it could go to another level. You know, just watch sure. taking off and, wow, wouldn't it be really cool to get to that next level. And I think what are some of the success stories that you've seen over that period uh, which sort of put WA on the map? Oh, look, there have been a number of them, um, Brody. Uh, I mean, everyone talks about Canva. Uh, that, that's just one of the classics. Um, but there, there's some serious learnings that we need to have around how Canva developed, then left because of, you know, funding issues and so on. Um, there are so many companies um, that I've seen develop in the med tech area, in, in all sorts of different areas. And I, I hate to single out too many individually because I've just been impressed with the entire sector. Um, the, the thing that probably strikes me most now is just the energy and the sense of confidence that's starting to emerge where you people are walking around with their shoulders held high instead of just coming in and slumped and feeling, mm. you know, like they're being beaten down, uh, just walking around proud and feeling, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing something really cool and it's important. And there's a buzz. You can feel the buzz. There's an energy. You go into any of these meetings and you walk in the room and you go, whoa, this is, this is electric, right? And so that to me has uh, just been uplifting to see all that happening. Yeah, and I do wonder if Canva started in Perth today, yeah. would they yeah. need to leave or would they stay? So yeah. I think that's a... You know, we have seen our health engine. There's there's a range of businesses Correct. that are choosing to stay, and COVID's Correct. probably helped that along a little bit as well. Uh, th- there's no doubt about that. Um, it's the timing's everything, mm. isn't it? And you know, once again, it's the maturity of the financial sector, which is a key issue here. You know, the financial sector in WA is very comfortable uh, putting money at risk for uh, resources, 
You know, if there's a potential gold mine here or a titanium play there or an oil and gas field there, they go, oh, yeah, we get it mm. and therefore we're prepared to, in, you know, invest and actually take a risk, right, take a punt on those. They are very uncomfortable in the tech sector, in the innovation sector, in the med tech sector. They don't quite understand it and therefore are less um, inclined to take those risks to invest. And it's part of an education process in my view, but also we don't celebrate the successes well enough so that people go, oh, crikey, I didn't know that was, you know, a, a good news story and that there are good opportunities here. So we need to get that narrative out there a lot more. But with success, six, you know, success breeds success. There's no doubt about it. Sure. Uh, Peter, in your opinion, uh, what are the gaps and improvements that could be had for the WA ecosystem? Wow. What can WA do better? Wow, that's, that's a really good question. Um, look, I, I talk about three key elements in, um, in attract. So bottom line, bright people for me come up with bright ideas, simple, right? So you've got to have bright people. So you either have to nurture the talent that, you, uh, that you've got locally or you attract talent externally and bring them in. So how do you do that? And I think there are three key elements to it. One is what I call the physical environment. So have you got the facilities? Have you got the toys, the tools to enable people's careers to take off? Uh, second is the financial environment. Uh, you can have the best ideas in the world, but unless someone's going to back you, it ain't going to go too far. And then the third bit's what I call the emotional environment, which is having giving people license to have a crack, to have a go, mate, instead of saying, she'll be right, mate. Uh, and uh, feeling that people can go out, take a risk, take a punt, uh, and not be criticised for, dare I say it, failing. You know, and nowadays, you know, if, if you go around the world, people don't talk about failing, they talk about flirting, mm. Mm. right? And I think that's just such a cool word because, you know, when things don't work out, you learn from them. You should learn from them because there are lessons there which go, okay, you didn't do this, this, this timing wasn't right, whatever it is, Um uh, how can you do it better the next time? So you go to Israel and they say, well, you're not going to be a success until you've had three, you know, startups that didn't work or something like that. So um, I, I think we just need to get over that little bit of a, a risk-averse nature as well. Uh, and that's endemic in WA, you know. <laughs> that's just one of um, one of the really interesting parts of our society. So uh, there are probably elements in each of those that we could do a bit better, but by jinkies, um, I've seen how... Uh, the physical environment's grown, just looking here at Space Cubed and mm. all the different incubators and accelerators that are emerging, it's just fantastic. Uh, the financial envir environment needs to improve. I think governments need to get engaged more, but it, it's not going to cost them a hell of a lot because, you know, um, finance is going to go to places where they're going to see they're going to get a return on investment. Mm. So if they, if they see that this is a place that's humming, they're likely to get engaged, right? And then the, th the third bit's that emotional environment, but it's providing support for people to go and have a crack and have a go, mate. Mm -hmm. I think it's just such a good saying. You know, it's good old Aussie saying, <laughs> have a go, mate, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I think risk is such an interesting concept because, you know, the, the real risk I see is that 46% of our economy is built up of, you know, mining and energy and resources income um, yeah. compared to, you know, the, the rest of the economy making up the rest. And yeah. it's, it's a real challenge because it's like that to me is a, is a risk. I, I, you know, we've got a great solid base for resources. It's not going anywhere. We've got a big opportunity. But, yeah, it'd be good to get your thoughts so, about how do we change that, that concept uh, uh, of risk. That, that, that is a, a key element in all of this, Brody. Um, you know, when I came into this role uh, eight years ago, uh, I was lithium was just becoming uh, an area of, of interest for the state. And I got to say, um, 
the Department of Mines here has got a thing called the Geological Survey of WA, which is a hidden gem. It is spectacular because they take drill cores from all around the state. They put them into a facility where anyone can go in and have a look at a drill core from, you know, Muck and Boudin or, you know, the Great Sandy Desert or whatever and just say, well, oh, there might be a bit of titanium there or there might be a bit of zircon there or whatever, right? It's like a dirty, great big library that people can come into and they can check things out. So that's been incredibly valuable for the state to develop its uh, resource sector. Excellent. Uh, We've had an incredibly successful resource sector. It will continue. There's no doubt about it. But the risks that you have associated with relying heavily on a resource sector are the ups and downs, you know, the busts and the booms, um, and the the fact that it, it it's, it's a bit like what was called the Dutch disease, what is called the Dutch disease, where the Netherlands discovered in the 1950s oil and gas in Groningen. And, you know, so much, everyone thought, oh, cool, you know, this is going to be a fantastic new industry. We're all going to make, make squillions out of this. And what, what happened was that capital and talent went into that sector and the other parts of the economy then suffered because talent and finance moved away from them. And before you knew it, the Dutch were having a recession down the track, you know, and you go, how, that, how did that happen? Mm. And so the Dutch is actually a common thing for resource-blessed uh, countries. Mm. Or, or jurisdictions, uh, and, and there's a, a study that's called the Curse of the Natural Resources, where uh, in many, many cases, uh, nations that have relied heavily on resources uh, basically have gone out and had a party. They've had a fantastic time, and when they've woken up and the resources are exhausted, they, they can't, they're having a hangover. Mm. And so you don't want that to happen in WA. So while coronavirus might be the disease of, of the, the, the current moment, we certainly don't want the Dutch disease mm. as well because that's going to have serious long-term implications for WA. So that's a long-winded way of saying it's, it's our base and, and, and it's great. Um, but as, as I started to say when I came into this role, I was told we take big rocks, we turn them into little rocks and we put them on a ship. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. We stick to our knitting. We do not go outside of that, right? And you're going, whoa, you know, where is the diversification? Where is going downstream? Where's the processing? Where's the manufacturing and all of this? And so I think that does put us at risk. Um, if you're looking at um, WA's export profile, 70% of our exports are in iron ore. 80% of that goes to one destination, Right, so essentially half of your exports are going to one are in one are in one commodity in one destination, and should things go pear shaped, you know you are at serious risk. Mm. Over ninety percent of our exports are in the resource area. Now you know while we're blessed with all of these resources and we're continuing to tap into them, uh, my view is we need to diversify to even out to smooth out those bumps and to actually utilise the talent that we've got. We've got bright people who are doing some really cool, funky things, right? I'd love WA to be a, a destination state where people go, oh, there's something really cool happening there. I want to be part of that. I want to be there, you know? So uh, uh, I get excited by the possibilities. Uh, you, you you don't just ignore the resource sector by any means. That would be insanity. But you say, what can we do to build around it? Mm-hmm. 
and probably talking about diversifying and the skills that we need to diversify. Um, women in STEM is mm. a, a huge opportunity for well, anyone in STEM, but mm. specifically women in STEM. Mm. And there's a whole range of initiatives already happening in that space that Whitwood is doing, She yeah. Codes, uh, a number of schools and universities are now doing a lot in this space. Yeah. Um, where do you see some opportunities there to really grow the impact? Oh, look, it, I, I'll just take one step back. So when I was uh, running uh, what's now the Harry Perkins Institute, it was called the West Australian Institute for Medical Research, and we'd be employing people. I just looked at the talent across the table. I actually didn't see gender. I didn't see um, religion or, um, uh, you know, anything. I just saw the person and what they brought to the table. Uh, and I guess it's pretty sad to think that um, people are making decisions based on gender, whatever, right, instead of saying what's the talent the person brings to the table. Uh, I think we're getting into a much more mature position, thank goodness. Um, uh, if, if you don't do that, you're excluding a whole bunch of talented people, which is just dumb. And so um, I think it's, it's been really sad that women haven't been encouraged to go into all sorts of other areas because it's not seen as sort of women's work or whatever. You know, I just don't understand it. It does my little head in, to be honest, because I have just met so many talented women uh, along my journey. And now, um, because I chair the, the Premier Science Awards, it is fantastic to see women now putting their hands up to say, you know what, I'm, I think I'm good enough to apply for this and I think I'm actually good enough to win. And so you're seeing now a number of women who are actually coming out winning these awards, which is encouraging other women to say, well, Look at that. There's a role model. There's someone who was successful. And then that, once again, it's success breeds success, right? Yeah, that's terrific. Uh, I guess one final question before we pause to thank our sponsors, Peter. Right. Um, something thought-provoking, if I may. Oh, here we go. Uh, the university system in WA, um, obviously it's publicly documented and well known that uh, your thoughts and opinions on perhaps uh, unification of the university yeah. system in WA, I guess just leading on to that a little bit before we, we take a yeah, bit of sure. a break. Um, I, I've been saying that for eight years, that I think the university sector in WA really needs to come together as one. Uh, I would merge all four public universities into one. Uh, it's met with a little bit of resistance from a couple of quarters. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, but the, 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 my reasoning, and um, I don't think anyone's really asked me around the facts behind it. So if you look at over the last 20 years, just looking at the university sector as a whole in WA, I tried to measure how competitive are we against other jurisdictions in Australia, all right? So as a sector, not looking at individual universities. Let's, let's use three metrics. One is international students. Are you attracting international students? Uh, two, are you attracting uh, competitive grants in uh, uh, either in the medical area or in, in uh, grants in general. Okay, so the, those three metrics that I looked at. And if you look at all three of them, there's a worrying, worrying trend. Go back 20 years to, what do we know, 2022? So it's 2002. WA's population is 10% of the national population. We were getting about 9 to 10% of international students. Fast forward to 2022, we're getting 5% of international students. Right. Okay, now... Let's just turn that into uh, dollars and cents. International students bring a billion dollars a year into WA. That's of 5%. If we were to get on a per capita basis 10%, which is what we should be getting at, 
we should be getting another billion. So the state is missing out on a billion dollars a year in international students because we're not an attractive destination. Perth is in the top 10 livable cities in the world, right? Yes. All see that plastered everywhere. We are not even looked at as really a higher education destination. We're not on the lists. The very best one I ever saw was W. Perth was ranked 39th in the world and others, you know, in the 50s, 70s, 80s. Right, so where we're a very livable city, we're not attract we're not attractive in terms of uh, international students. So that's one metric. Uh, another one that I, I, I've looked at is these grants. And twenty years ago, we were pulling in nine to ten percent of the grants on competitive grants. We're now pulling in four to five percent of competitive grants. So we are losing between a hundred and two hundred million dollars a year in terms of competitive grants coming into WA. So I went, okay, you know, is there some sort of a conspiracy going against WA here? You know, those Eastern States people, you know, they're really giving us a hard time. I looked at all the number of academics in, if you combine all the academics in WA into one university, there's about three and a half thousand of them. That is the equivalent of the University of Queensland academics or Melbourne University or Monash University or University of New South Wales. So all the academics WA make up one of those big universities nationally. Another scary metric is if you look at, okay, who are the uh, the rock stars of research? They're called the high citation researchers, the high size, okay? <laughs> um, and in WA, um, there are 22 high size in total in all four of the universities. The University of Queensland has got 44. Mm. Melbourne University has got 40. Uh, University of New South Wales has got 39. They've got basically double what the whole of WA has got. And so, you know, UWA has got 10, Curtin's got, I think, six, Murdoch's got two or three, and ECU's got one. So I'm thinking, and, and, and what's frustrated me is that the universities poach these talented people from each other, right? Yep. And so where you, you poach one one high citation group so that your rankings will go up, it is to the detriment of the other group. Mm. So they go yes. down. So there's, there's no net benefit yep. to the state in this. We should be attracting talent, bringing talent in to add to our talent pool and in, improving our, our, our position. So uh, those are the parts of the reasons why uh, uh, I, I think we need to, to do something serious. And if we do amalgamate, that combined university takes us well into the top 100 in the world, getting to the you know, mid-50s, 60s, something like that, whereas currently UWA is the highest ranked and it's just hanging on to 100. You know, uh, Curtin's about 250, Murdoch and ECU are in the 400s plus. So, you know, I, I don't understand why you, you, you wouldn't consider bringing them together and still having all of your identity, each one of those campuses could focus on their key strengths. Nothing would change, but you're under an umbrella that's got a very high ranking. You're going to be much more attractive to international students and you're going to be much more attractive to try and attract talented staff because would you be more interested in going to a top 50, 60 university or a top 500 university? Make that decision in your career. You know, so those are some of the issues. Mm. There's a bunch of others that I could talk about. Um, but I guess all I'm saying is it would be really nice to have a mature conversation around that instead of people just getting stroppy. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And a shout out to the Startup West podcast sponsors. The Startup West podcast is produced by Startup News and is made possible by the support from Space Cubed, Curtin University, RSM, the City of Perth, 
Dinner Twist and Tech On. Peter, can you take me back through your career that's led you to Chief Scientist and what your upbringing was, you know, what mm. led to that? Over? Okay. Wow, how far back do we want to go, right? It's okay. up to you. So I was, I was born in Singapore. Um, I went to primary school in Singapore. Um, my folks sent me to uh, a Catholic school because um, they believed in their religion. Um, I happened to be the only white kid in an all-Asian school and that was a challenge. Um, it, it, if you talk about racism, um, there was reverse racism. You know, uh, there was a, re- a very strong uh, anti-European uh, feeling uh, in Singapore at the time because they were coming through a post-colonial period. Uh, they were wanting to develop independence. and to- I get all that. I really do. Um, but as a young kid growing up, uh, to be uh, vilified because of the colour of your skin um, was something that I found difficult, i got to say. And so I have this absolute inherent detestation of racism or any ism where you get branded with, with some sort of a label uh, without knowing what the individual is. And so uh, I guess I, I, I have a very strong sympathy and empathy for Aboriginal people um, because of the inherent racism that exists um, and I just find that totally unacceptable. So while I, f- I found it very hard growing up and, and trying to understand why people couldn't stand me with throwing rocks at me, knifing me and stuff like that, um, it was a really good lesson for me, a life lesson, uh, which I've carried ever since. So that was important. Um, from there, my, my folks wanted to send me to secondary school uh, either in Europe because there was a big expat um, community there um, in, in Singapore and go back to either to the UK or to, to Denmark where my father was from. Uh, or someone said, well, why don't you have a look at Australia? It's just down the road. And my, my folks came here, just absolutely fell in love with, with Australia and they sent me to a boarding school in 1966. Um, and I say, when I got here, I say, this country welcomed me. I just felt at home. The moment I got here, I just, I just knew this was where I belonged. It was just this wonderful feeling of um, feeling loved, I guess, and valued and um, appreciated. So um, when, I, when I talk to Aboriginal people about that and they say, you know, when I say this country accepted me, I didn't say the people accepted me, I said the country. And they go, yeah, we get that. You know, this Buja, this, this earth, this mother, this mother, mother, mother earth, looks after us all if we look after it and it was welcoming you. So that, that's, a, that's a really nice thing for me to, to experience. Um, so I did secondary schooling here in Perth, um, went to university, did a double degree in biochemistry and in microbiology. Can I tell you a funny story about mm-hmm. how I got there? Go for it. Okay. Uh, you know, key decision point in my life. Um, at the age of 15, I think I, I won a biology prize at school. And other kids uh, at speech night were getting, you know, movie passes or, you know, uh, records and whatever. I get a biology textbook <laughs> for a prize. I'm going, WTF, are you serious? <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. You know, I was just livid. Uh, I didn't look at it at all. And I just, uh, grumbled the whole summer through. And then I, I did biology in year 11 and year 12. And as I was getting ready for my year 12 exams or whatever, I thought, I might just look at this book. Maybe there's something in it. And it turned out to be a, uni- a, a college, a first-year college biology textbook in, if, from the US. So it was a pretty sophisticated thing to be giving to, you know, to a young student. 
Um, and in it was a combination of chemistry and biology. I loved both of those disciplines, chemistry and, bi- and, and biology. And they had brought that together in this new discipline called biochemistry. And the moment I saw that, I was just smitten. I just thought, that's it. That's what I want to do. So at the age, I don't know, 16 or whatever it was, I made that big decision. I'm going to be a biochemist. Did that at university. And oh yeah, this is all because of a book that I was given, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, turning point in my life. Um, did biochemistry, did honours, did a PhD. Uh, I was enjoying my PhD so much because it was liberating. I was allowed to go and explore, uh, do all sorts of funky experiments, cool things, and just have a crack at that. Um, and then I was having so much fun doing that, I forgot that at the end of a PhD, there's one thing you got to do. <laughs> it's called write a thesis. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd run out of money, right? out of scholarship <laughs> money. And it was an oh, <laughs> dot, 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 dot moment, right? Yeah. So what do you do when you've only got a bachelor's degree in science? Um, so I ended up teaching. So I, I taught at Scotch College for three years, did a diploma of education at the same time, did my PhD at the same time and taught full time. And I just loved teaching. Uh, it was just such a privilege to be able to do that. And I say I, I probably learnt more from teaching than me teaching the kids because you had to pitch your lessons going from a year eight geology class to a year 12 chemistry class instantaneously. You had to pitch it at the right level so that the kids were engaged and that you were actually transmitting information. So I, I think that's been really useful for my entire career about learning to pitch to the right audience and knowing what your audience is and how, how, to, how to communicate with them. Uh, from there, I was fortunate enough to go to Washington to the National Institutes for Health and spent three really, really productive years there uh, doing cancer research. It's the first time I got exposed to it. Came back to Melbourne to the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, which uh, I described as scientific heaven for me because uh, the quality of the work being done there was absolutely world-class, but it had this lovely, warm, collegiate, collaborative feel about it. And, you know, you could talk to people, exchange ideas. Whereas if you did that in the States, if you talk to someone about your ideas, they got pinched mm. and someone would end up doing exactly what you've just been talking about. And that happened to me several times because I was just naive to, to their system, right? And so I, I love the idea of the freedom of sharing information and, and getting a buzz out of it, right? So um, it, was, it was very salutary experience for me in, in the United States, I should say. From Melbourne, came back to Perth, uh, became an academic at UWA, became a professor in 94. Uh, and I was at based at uh, Royal Perth Hospital and I was told, well, what we really hired you for was to set up a medical research institute. I went, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> How many times have I done that? <laughs> Not on my CV. <laughs> um, but it was just such a unique opportunity to, to do something like that. And then I, I had to learn about setting up organisations, setting up, uh, getting the funds and so on. So essentially it was a startup. So WA Institute for Medical Research was a startup. It's, it started with me. You know, we had to go and I had to go and fundraise, do the, you know, bootstrapping and try and, you know, build uh, build something, getting the physical environment, uh, the, the financial environment, and then the emotional environment and then recruiting. And that's now morphed into the Harry Perkins Institute. And I think there's about three, 400 people there now. There's a couple of buildings. So I'm quite chuffed about that one. So while I was at the Perkins Institute, one of the things we tried to work on was how do you diversify your income stream? Um, it, it's a real challenge because if you're relying on, on grant funding because grant cycles go up and down, uh, you, going to philanthropy is really hard because, you know, um, there are really generous people, but can you keep going back to the well? 
Um, so what are the alternatives? So we set up a, a, a fee-for-service company called Linear Clinical Research, and that's the first um, uh, phase one f- clinical trials facility in WA, and that now employs 250 people, has brought $100 million into WA. And so now I, I can ex- sort of look back on all this and go, oh, you know what? I actually created a few startups. Yeah, a, you know, yeah, yeah. Some of them it's very entrepreneurial. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I guess I have a, uh, an affinity for people who are being entrepreneurial yeah. and prepared to have a crack uh, and uh, understand the challenges, the, the yeah. excitement, the buzz, but also some of the tough times that you've got to go through uh, to get to that end point. Peter, based on these extensive experiences that you've had over time, uh, what advice would you give to the Perth startup community today? <laughs> Um, well, have a, have a good idea, have a crack, have a go, mate, have a go, right? Um, be very clear in your uh, communication, um, how you're going to pitch the idea, uh, understand the audience that you're uh, pitching to, and it's going to vary, right? Is, is it a financial audience? Uh, is it a community audience or is it a, you know, a government audience? Uh, that needs to be very, very clear. So have in your mind the clarity of what you want to do, uh, have a clear vision of where you want to go and understand it's not going to be linear. You aren't going to go just straight down the road and find, you know, your destination. It is going to be a zigzag all over the place. All over the place. There'll be pitfalls, there'll be roadblocks, there'll be all sorts of things, but you've got to have resilience as well. You've got to hang in there. And so... Uh, uh, it, it's a it's a wild ride. Um, enjoy the ride. Uh, wrap as many people as you can around you um, who can provide you with support, mentoring, advice, and all those sorts of things. If you try and do it on your own, it's really tough. And in in over the last ten years, the local fundraising scene has really changed. Like the investment scene, that's starting to evolve a lot. Yeah. What? Yeah, what would you like to see over the next 10 years for how that investment scene evolves even further? Look, um, it has been a, a, a tough journey to get that up and running. Um, we're, I think we're on the cusp of seeing some major improvements. Um, I think scale is probably the biggest thing. Uh, you know, we, we've, we in WA take what I call the Vegemite approach and we spread things too thin. And, um, you know, we'll say, oh, you know, a few thousand dollars here, just, you know, we'll spread it around and um, without understanding that you actually need a bit of scale to get momentum, to get things happening. And so that's, once again, that's sort of an education type thing. But it also comes with risk being able to say, right, we're going to give you more money, but we're expecting, you know, but it, there's going to be hits and misses. Uh, the, the, the Vegemite approach, um, you know, it sort of just soothes the entire mm. ecosystem mm. potentially, right, and just sort of dampens things down. And you go to me till you go to the lowest common denominator. And so at the end of the day, for me, everything's about excellence. You know, bright people come up with bright ideas. You've got to back the bright people. And um, I would just love to see, as confidence develops in this area, we develop more scale. Uh, external funds will come in and, and, and it'll really take off. Um, but we need to be open-minded and not have a closed mindset. I think here in WA, um, we, we, we don't talk about these things with great pride. Uh, we, we're still seen as a mining mining town uh, and, and, and you know as Brody as you said you know that's not going to go away um, but we need to celebrate the other things the smart sophisticated clever cool things that are going here going on here that will attract smart people we're more than just a selfie with quokka on rotto all right yeah. so we should be celebrating all of those funky cool things you know some of the best plays the best music 
you know, and you think of some of the bands that have come out of here, you know, oh, God, Booze of Tokyo, you know, et cetera. Um, this is, there's some, there's some really wonderful things that are going on, but they're not celebrated as well as we could. We don't present, present ourselves or portray ourselves in that light. We're just still seen as a dig and grow economy that does rocks and crops. Brody, Peter, uh, to close off, I think it's time to really jump into our rapid quickfire round mm. to close off. <laughs> this, 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 is so this the risky some, bit? Some short answers here, Peter. <laughs> okay, Go you mate. Just right, talk. Well, have a go. All right. Uh, what's the single most important factor that makes a successful startup? A great idea. If you were to wave your magic wand over the local startup scene, Peter, what would you wish into being or wish away? Uh, I'd, I'd wish away um, all the roadblocks and uh, the closed mentalities. Uh, what I'd wish would be for a, a more open, uh, uh, open-minded thinking to say that this is something that's really, really valued and critical for our future. Who do you most admire in the local tech scene, a company or a person? Um, I, I give two parts to that answer. Uh, one, I admire everyone who's uh, prepared to have a crack. I just, take, you know, take takes my hat off to to everyone that that, that does that. Um, if there's one person, it's, it's actually in this room, and it's you, Brody. <laughs> you know, you came back um, what ten years ago? Yeah. All right, and you really had a crack at a time when everyone's going, "This is nuts." All right, people were looking at you, going. Is this guy for real? You know, uh, I, I know that. And I guess I've admired uh, your resilience. I've admired the way you've built um, your business and you've built, you've been a, a key platform uh, for the entire ecosystem. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Peter. Yeah, thanks for your support over the last eight years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Peter, you obviously are the apex of your role, but how can anyone listening today support you in your role as chief scientist or the community efforts that you provide as part of your important role? Uh, such a good question. Um, I think it's critical that if there are th- things that I say that resonate with people, they need to get out and say it themselves. So it can't just be this geeky chief scientist who's saying stuff. I'm very happy to go out there and talk about things and put out put ideas out there. And that's a big part of my job, right? Um, but in, I can easily be dismissed as this just, you know, the state's uber geek. Um, you know, he's, he's got no credentials in economics or whatever. And so I think it's really important that every person takes on some responsibility and actually then presents that argument to whoever they see, whether it's family, it's friends, it's politicians or public servants. If you believe in this, you really need to be on board and presenting the case as well. And last question, uh, what do you do to get away from it all? Relax and refresh. (laughs) Well, um, oh, here's, here's a little secret that I'll share with just you guys in the room. <laughs> lovely, We're lovely. in the cone of silence. <laughs> <laughs> um, every Thursday night I, uh, I go down to a, a property that I've got down in the Margaret River area. It's a bush block. And so when I wake up on a Friday morning, all I see is bush and ocean. And for me, it's uh, it's a cleansing. It's a connection with country. I feel absolutely at peace there. I feel content um, it gets rid of a whole lot of the churn that's going through my mind during the week because it's so busy. Um, it's a time just to recalibrate. Uh, I, I feel that is where I probably do my best thinking and best uh, bringing together of ideas. Um, and then, you know, just getting out and doing the hard yakka on the block and 
getting the you know, chainsaw out and tidying things up or going for a surf, going for a dive and getting some abalone. Um, those things are just really, really special to me. Um, it, it's hard trying to balance uh, a crazy busy uh, role, um, actually multiple roles because I'm chair of Lottery West and Healthway as well, um, with uh, a balanced lifestyle. So that's my way of, of doing it. Peter, thank you ever so much for the fun yet candid conversation today. Our very best wishes for the continued success in your chief scientist role and all of your future endeavours. Um, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Um, thank you for the, for the invitation to speak today. And can I just thank everyone who's out there having a crack? Um, it is just uplifting for me to see people uh, prepared to have a go uh, and take some risks because in the absence of taking risks, it's just business as usual and business as usual just won't cut it. So for those people that are out there putting themselves on the line and wanting to make a difference, go for it. Really, really proud of you. Thank you. Thank you to our sponsors. The Startup West podcast is produced by Startup News and is made possible by the support of Space Cubed, Curtin University, RSM, City of Perth, Dinner Twist and TechOn. We recorded the podcast at Rift Podcast Studios in beautiful downtown Perth, Western Australia. Don't forget to subscribe to Startup West on your favourite podcast platform so our latest episodes appear in your feed. And if you like what you hear, please do leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you.